Now, the bottom of factionalism, the bottom of divisiveness, is I. It's a party spirit that looks like the elevation of self. That's what we were looking at last Sunday in the text where Paul appealed to us on the basis of the authority of Christ that we have the same mind and judgment regarding the truths about himself. And so he was saying that it's so critical for us to to put ourselves in proper place. We become disunified when we advance ourselves and not Christ. How does this tendency creep into a church? I mean, we're founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does it develop? And frankly, I believe that there are at least two several ideas here. And the first is that we have maybe a, perhaps a misunderstanding at times and misunder, misapplication of the gospel to our lives. But the second issue and how this kind of comes into, I think, a church is that we often have itching ears. We really inherently, we like eloquent wisdom. We like wisdom that flatters us and tells us how great we are. And so it touches things like wisdom and marketing and, and, and the world we live in affirms our sense of a self-worth. And so it touches us personally and we, we enjoy it. And so it's important for us to understand that the world that we have lived in over the last several decades has had such a high priority on self-esteem to the point that if we're not careful, we're advancing ourselves rather than Christ. The culture can affect the church, and if we're not careful, our itching ears will distort the message of the gospel. And so it's important for us to understand the significance of of the cross and its power and where it comes from. See, self-esteem makes much of ourselves. We, we like it when people pat us on the back. But we have to beware because that, that adulation, that tendency, if we're not careful, will create a pride within our hearts that drips with the venom of Satan. And so the world views a pride in self as being wise. It's how you get ahead in life. It's how you're successful. But according to God and his wisdom, that viewpoint is utterly foolish. And so we have to be very careful. And how does this kind of come into the church? I I don't know if you've heard it said this way, and and I'm thinking about how this idea of self-esteem and value comes into a church. Maybe you've heard expressions of the gospel in this way. If you were the only person on earth, God would have died for you. Now, that's a popular way of expressing God's love, and before you throw stones at me, There is a sense in which God's love is directed towards you. But that is not the end of that pointing. The gospel itself is, yes, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
But the problem, if, if taking that concept, if you were the only one and you isolate that and that becomes the hinge on which you describe the gospel, you're missing the greater purpose for which Christ died. The greater purpose is not the promotion of us. It's the promotion of the power and the wisdom of God in it. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is arguing that the power of the gospel is not so much about you, as of course we're a part of that, but it's the greater emphasis upon the exaltation of Christ in God through doing something that seemed absolutely foolish and ridiculous. And so in this first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is advocating, he's, he's, he's arguing that gospel power is not found in self-promotion. Rather, gospel power is found in the exaltation of God and his glory. And the exaltation of God and his power and his wisdom is seen in the cross. Because the gospel is so contrary to any of our expectations. It was so contrary to our expectations, it was eminently wise. And so the gospel is based upon a crucified Messiah. And who, who in the name of wisdom would have ever have dreamed that up? Only God could be so wise to be so foolish. And in this paragraph, Paul is setting up for us the central gospel point that is so often overlooked. The gospel is not ultimately about you. It's about God. Does that mean that God is egotistical? It's not egotistical if God knows that your greatest joy can only be met in making much of him. He knows what's best for us. And so the power and the wisdom of God is on full display on the cross in a way that absolves any human wisdom. And so for you to be able to see that is a tremendous work of God in your heart. For you to be able to see that the gospel is not only about you in that sense, but it's everything about God is a divine work of the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see. It comes from Him. And even after faith has come, we have to fight the human tendency. That we, We've got to fight against that tendency of shrinking the gospel down to be just being about us. The gospel is infinitely greater than us. It is God and his power and his wisdom and his glory. And so in this text, Paul's arguing that God upends all self-promotion by the cross. Bonnie in the office asked me if the word upend was a Canadianism. Do we know what upend means? It means flip over. Take what we think is on the top and just turn it right around. And that's what, that's what the cross does. It destroys any sense of like what would be the way we would do it. And crushes it. 
It's ironic here what Paul is doing and expressing. It's an irony. But you know what? It's even more than an irony. It's satire. It's mocking. It's mocking our little ideas that we think are so great and crushes them and takes what we would consider so, so infinitely unvaluable and promotes it on such a global scale. That's what the cross does. And so this morning as we break up this text to kind of open up that idea for hopefully for our understanding here, I want us to see in verses 18 to 21 how that the gospel is intentionally foolish to show God's hand in salvation. And so in verse 18, the wisdom of God is seen by those who are being saved. Now, what does he say there in verse 18? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's the negative. But on the positive, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's, there's eyes to see it. We're able to grasp it as for what it really is. And so the wisdom of God is seen by those who are being saved. So as Paul writes these few verses, he's, he's seeing groups, historic groups, that things are changing. There's something radically new developing here. In the previous way of God's dealing, there was Jew and there was Gentile. And these, that, those were the two groups. But now, once the cross has, come, cross has come, out of those groups of people, there are those being saved and those who are perishing. It is a radical disorientation, a radical change of perspective. And so... In verse 18, you are either being saved in this new group or you're perishing. And the word perish here in verse 18 stands for the eternal plunge into godlessness. Perishing. This is where you're going. You can't see God right now and God is not being seen and one day you will not see him ever. You're perishing. But then on the other hand, those who are being saved. In verse 24, he says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's being seen. And these people are believing. Verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Believe what? Believe that the cross in all of its shame is the infinite power and wisdom of God. It makes sense. That which doesn't make sense. And so, not only do these people see God's wisdom, these ones who are being saved, but they're being shaped by that cross. They're being shaped according to the pattern. They're becoming like Christ. What does the cross look like? Last Sunday we were talking about that. It looks like not a laurel crown, does it? That green crown. 
It looks like that lowly, wrapped, twisted thorns. And there's a perspectival change here. That those who are being shaped by the cross are having a lesser view of themselves. They're becoming identified with the cross rather than themselves. And so the wisdom of God is seen by those who are being saved. In verse 19 to 20, that develops this contrastive idea that the wisdom of God is not seen by those who are perishing. Now, what is Paul doing here in these verses? Let's read verse 20. He says, verse 19, actually, verse 19, it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I'll overturn it. I'll make it so it's not accessible. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Paul appeals to a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29, verse 14 And Paul quotes this verse. Why does Paul quote this verse as a support for what he's saying? It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy of what God will one day do, but he quotes this and in it alludes to something significant that happened in the world of Israel back in the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, we're not as well familiar with some of the stories. I, I wish that we as, as people were more, more in tune with the Old Testament and understood it to a greater degree. But what's happening in Isaiah is that, that Judah was in, the, was in the mix of world events. There were things happening all around them. They could see a threatening storm from the north, a political storm from the north. And Assyria was that political storm. They had already removed the sister tribes from the northern part of Israel, and Judah was left. Judah had a kingship, but they could see that their time was running out. And so what do they do? They start to think of ways in which they could engineer their salvation. They don't look to God. They try to engineer it and use their own wisdom for themselves. The prophet Isaiah comes to the kings, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and says to them, Look, I know you want to make alliances with Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt and all their chariots. Trust in the Lord. Unbeknownst to Hezekiah, his secretary of state, probably on his own authority, acted through back channels and established some connections with Egypt and had, had bargained for chariots to come and be there. Well, of course, nothing secret. Assyria hears about it. They bring down their armies and they surround Judah. They surround Jerusalem and Hezekiah is, is like a bird in a cage and he's all caught. Now, it might have seemed like a wise move to go and, go and get those chariots to protect yourself but it was contrary to the law of Moses. Moses' law had actually prohibited Israel from owning and operating chariots so that they would not take confidence in themselves and promote themselves, but they would have to lean and depend upon God. And what happens at the end of Hezekiah's story? 
God comes in and dramatically rescues them from the jaws of death. It might have been a wise move, but it was infinitely wiser to trust in the God that controls all things. And so this is the setting by which Paul reaches back and takes that prophecy that was, it was meant for that day, but it was also meant to picture forward a greater deliverance that was to come. It was to picture how that the cross in all of its irony, all of its foolishness would upend, would destroy the tendency of taking confidence in yourself. When you think about it, this is exactly what the cross does. It, it is the great reversal. And it's been played out through, through human eyes and seeing it and witnessing it. And Jesus Christ dying and then three days later, contrary to everyone's expectation, rising from the grave to give victory over death. So in verse 20, what is Paul doing here? He's, he's with biting sarcasm. He's saying, where is the one who is wise? Who is the scribe? You know, the, the guy who accumulates all this information. Where's the debater of this age? The guy who stands on TED Talks and, or talks, you know, as a commentator. Paul's asking, where are the smartest people that have the answers? You stop and think about that for a moment. How much closer are we to peace in this world than we were a century ago? How much closer are we to eliminating poverty, to, to hunger, to ignorance, to crime, and to immorality? We are no more closer, even though we have an accumulated degree of wisdom. We think that we have the answers. But the cross says, no, you don't. I have the answer. We're more educated than our forefathers, but yet we are not moral, any more moral than our forefathers. We have so much means of helping people, but we are so selfish. We've got more psychology, we've got more education, but we are still on the precipice of eternity. Where is the wise person who has the answer for life after death? God does. And it looks like a cross. Human wisdom cannot see because it cannot see because it will not see. It refuses to look at the cross. And you must have faith in God. This is how God designed it. You have to believe in Him. And so the preaching of the cross and the message of itself, um, Paul uses a word here, he says in verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is, there's a lot of foolish preaching, I understand that. And that's not kind of the emphasis of what he's saying here. But he's saying that the message itself is so foolish, it is so hard to comprehend that it can only be accepted by faith. It can only be received through eyes that see. 
And that, that, that transaction, that, that movement of embracing of Christ by faith alone, there's something mysterious there that takes over and it creates within a person a love for God. A, a heart that desires to make much of God, to glorify Him. That's the power and the wisdom of God. How it happens, I don't know, but the Spirit moves and creates life within. So the gospel is intentionally foolish to show God's hand in salvation, but it is also intentionally foolish to mock the idolatry of self-promotion. Verse 22 through 24, Paul's continuing this argument, and he's saying, For the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, that's the content, and it destroys the idolatries of the Jews and also of the Greeks. That's what it does. And Paul is, is, is uh, pointing out two basic idolatries of these people. The first is a lust for power, a lust for power. It's inherent in the request for a sign. The Jews demanded a sign. And that reflects the messianic expectations. You know, they had read all of their lives that God had powerfully moved and had taken them out of Egypt and put them into the promised land. He did it with miraculous signs and miraculous powers. And they were fully anticipating that their Messiah would do the same thing and remove them from the grips of the Roman Empire. God had to do it their way. And that's what idolatry does. It conforms God to the view of how we think God should do things. The demand for justice, the demand for power was so pregnant within their thoughts and hearts, they couldn't see God because they lusted after the power and restoration of the kingdom. And ultimately, it was about themselves. It wasn't about God's kingdom at all. It was about themselves. You see, God is not made in our image. We are made in his image. God's ways are higher than our ways. God is not someone who we can figure out. If God could be figured out, then we would not be having a God at all. He has to be greater in wisdom than we are. And so the Messiah meant power, it meant splendor, it meant triumph. It would be the promotion of Israel to preeminence on the world stage. And at the root, there was a lust for power. But a crucified Messiah? A crucified Messiah meant weakness, it meant humiliation, it meant defeat, it meant that Jesus was a state criminal. That doesn't make sense. And so often, we in our own lives can replicate the idolatry of the Jews. We can look at Christianity as a means for success and moral improvement so that I can do well in this world and have strength in this world and have security in this world. And if we're not careful, it can all become about us. Not only was... That idolatry attacked at the cross. The second idolatry here is, a, is, is that of wisdom, a lust for wisdom. The Greeks insisted on wisdom. 
It was like a, nat a national characteristic for them. If the Jews were hungry for power, the Greeks were hungry for wisdom because success and wisdom made one great. It was common in that day for people to go around with little quips. You know, we all have little sayings that we kind of hold on to every once in a while, kind of resonate with our thoughts. It was very common to hear people in Greece say things like, the wise man is a king. To the wise men are all things. And so as they pursued wisdom, they were pursuing something for the purpose of getting now, let me try to bring this down to applicational level, but think for a minute about the Greek world. The Greek world, you think about the temples and you think about the gods and the goddesses. But those gods and goddesses, their representations were means to an end. There was gods that, that if you followed, you engineered your whole life to fit around a pattern so that you could also be wealthy. So that you also could have beauty. So that you could have frivolity and drunkenness. So that you could have sexual pleasure. And so the idea was you order your whole life. It's wise for you to follow this trajectory and this pattern and you, you organize your life in this direction and then you will have what that goddess promises. Or that God. And if you think about it, there's not a lot of difference between then and now. Wisdom is often described as the successful, the successful navigation of life. To the, be the best at something, you have to submerse your personal identity with the identity of the thing that you want to become. You want to be a good hockey player. In Canada, that meant you became hockey. You want to be known as the greatest hunter. You've got to eat, breathe, and drink hunting. Your identity becomes that. If you want to become a YouTuber, you've got to be Mr. YouTube personality. And you submerse everything to that identity. And our world is so infatuated with what success like, looks like. It's, it, it, and so you see people who are successful and you're like, I want to be like that. They are so bold. They are so confident. They are so inspiring. They are so successful. But then to get that, you have to promote yourself. And at root, wisdom and success is the promotion of ourselves. Just as the Jews promoted themselves through the avenue of power. And so it's so critical for us to understand that the cross cuts away. It cuts away this tendency for self-promotion because we are all helpless before the cross. And it is also meant to affect how we live our daily lives. It's not just a gateway for getting out of hell. It is a reorganization of our whole identity so that we are now no longer living for ourselves and our self-promotion, but for Christ, only Christ. It might mean the reorganization of our life so that we do not become obsessed with fashion or beauty or hobbies and even family. 
Instead, this God who died on the cross might actually ask us to serve him and not only our own self-interest. Third thing that I believe that the gospel does here this morning, I want us to see, is in verse 25, the very last verse. The gospel is intentionally foolish to magnify the power and the wisdom of God in Christ. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, it's out of this world. It is out of this world. It doesn't belong to this world. This is so not of this world. It is clearly of God. I mean, the intentional foolishness of the cross here demonstrates this. Where does this wisdom come from? God is both wiser and more powerful than any human being to take something which is so insignificant and actually do something very powerful with it. I think Isaiah 40, verse 21 to 23, really echoes this this idea where the prophet wrote, So do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are as grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness. That is our God. I don't know if you've ever been in a high building. Maybe in New York City there are high buildings and you've looked down and seen the little ants running around. How insignificant everything looks from that perspective. But when you get down on ground level, it feels like this is the whole world. And it all revolves around me. And what God is saying through this is that no, it doesn't all revolve around you. It revolves around me. You know, if God had asked us for wisdom, we might have had a more workable plan for God. We might have said, you know, there's got to be some better way to attract these people who are seeking things. These people who love wisdom. But no, God didn't ask us. Instead, he outsmarted all of his creation. He nullified our wisdom. And it is in this cross that he overpowers his enemies, the greatest enemy of all, which was Satan. In in the cross, Satan was completely defeated. He lavished grace and forgiveness on us who were in rebellion against him. And in taking away our strength with the cross, he gives us infinite resources that are in him. God upended all self-promotion in the cross. Why did he do this? He did this because the gospel is not ultimately about you. It's, uh, it is ultimately about God and his glory and the magnification of him. The cross pushes against our desire to be made much of. It pushes our tendency for self-promotion. And the exaltation of God is wholly appropriate. It is so appropriate. But yet it is so hard to hear. 
Let me close with an excerpt of an interview that I came across this past week. The interview took place a couple of years ago. But it was an interview with with a writer who lives in Kentucky. He wrote a book called An American Gospel. He did an interview on NPR. And in that interview... The man who wrote this book, his name was Mr. Reese, he, he wrote this book, and the interviewer quotes from the book, and this is what he quotes. He quotes Matthew 10, 37 through 39, and the quote goes like this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And she read those words and and then asked, you know, read the next line actually in his book. And Mr. Reese said this in his book. He said this about these verses. He said, who is the egomaniac speaking these words? And so, the interviewer asks him to elaborate on that idea. Who is this egomaniac? And this is what he says, quote, well, it just struck me as, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him? Who are we really, who we are really incapable emotionally of loving? more so than that we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed like an incredible, egomaniac kind of claim to make. And this is what Jesus is saying, though. Love me more than you love anything else in the world. If you don't, you're not worthy of me. In fact, if you don't, there are some catastrophic implications for not loving me in this way. That's crazy. That's foolishness. But that's the demand of the cross. The demand of the cross is the subjection of ourselves and the elevation of Christ above all. There are many times in the Bible where Christ makes these claims. But if we're offended by God's self-exaltation, then it should be no surprise that we're offended by this kind of stuff. See, God knows our hearts. He knows our tendency to promote ourselves and our own wisdom, our own interests, our own power. He knows the capacity of idolatry of our hearts. Because to come to the cross requires that we see God as all-powerful and worthy of exaltation and praise. It means we surrender all the idols of our life at His feet. It means we embrace the cross and we take on humility. But when we come to the cross, we don't leave the cross as if that was good for right here. We now take the cross and apply it to our daily life. We promote not ourselves, we promote the cross of Christ. We exalt and lift His name high. 
in that there is great wisdom. And to those who are being saved, Paul says, who have the capacity to see this by faith, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 